Welcome to the Global Business Insights Podcast, brought to you by PSL. I'm your host, Max Kent, and I'll be joined by my co-host, Dr. Charlotte de Brabant. In Series 2, Beyond Business, we delve into the captivating journeys of the world's most exceptional business leaders, entrepreneurs and professionals. Our mission is not only to ignite inspiration and knowledge for the next generation, but also to illuminate the path for those currently navigating challenges. Join us as we uncover the remarkable stories that transcend traditional business narratives and offer a beacon of hope and guidance. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Global Business Insights podcast. This is series two, um, where we're talking about business journeys and the extraordinary stories of some very talented and experienced business leaders. Today, we've got a very special guest, Thomas Searsbake Helenior from Cospits. Um, hi, Thomas, would you like to give us a quick introduction on yourself? Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. Um, so I come with a long commercial background before I ventured into procurement, did about eight years of commercial sales, marketing, but then the last about 20 years, I worked strictly within procurement, mostly for Maersk, being a partner at PwC, and wanted to take some of that knowledge and leverage it to build a basically a B2B SaaS solution for mid-market clients in Europe and the US. I think that's a short version of what I've done for the last 30 years. Thank you so much, Thomas. And looking through your career at this stage where you are now as, as the CEO of your own business, Cospis, it's truly impressive. Maybe you can share a defining moment or experience from those early days that very much sparked your passion for entrepreneurship and how has, um, how has that passion continued to, to, to dive through your journey with Cospis? Absolutely. I think it's probably a lot more than just, you know, one single incident, right? I think the first big aha moment came when I was, I was doing basically a procurement assessment for for Merck line, the shipping line. Um, we'd been sitting in our ivory tower in Copenhagen and then suddenly realizing that all those fancy global contracts we were making were probably not being used that much when we actually went out to the countries on their level. Um, so I had I pitched a project on Thursday that we should see if we maybe should have some sort of regional setup. Uh, and I picked Africa because that would make me live in Cape Town, to be quite honest. Um, so that was on Thursday, and I moved to Cape Town on Monday. And, and during those six months down there, I traveled to like 16, 18 different countries. And, and during that travel, I realized that there's a few things that we had definitely gotten wrong in uh, in Copenhagen. First of all, we had thought that they knew about what we were doing. They had no clue because we'd maybe forgotten to tell them. So that was something that we could improve. But I also realized that the local skill set is, is pretty good, even though the uh, the procurement organizations are vastly understaffed, but also that they had a lot of data. Um, so the actual idea of building cockpits came, I think I was in Ghana. I just had full day meetings in Accra outside Ghana on the coast side, sitting in a hotel late at night saying, well, if they actually have skill sets for this, they actually have the data for this, we should really build something for these, you know, inherently mid-sized, small-sized companies that want to do this, but don't have the skill set for it. So that's really the motivation for it. So I was meeting all these people in all these different countries really wanted to do this, but they did not have the toolbox. And I just think that we owed it to them to build that toolbox. That's really the core motivation for why I want to build stuff. So I've been building stuff ever since, including now this. 
Fantastic. Thanks, Thomas. Really great to hear and so inspiring to hear how um, that calling to build something is inherent in that in that entrepreneur. And I don't think that's that's for everyone. It's certainly um, certain people have that calling. And we can clearly see that with you. So um, building a um, building a uh, B2B SaaS business like Cospit and working with those prominent organisations. Um, so let's start again. I'm sharing the wrong screen. Sorry. So building a B2B SaaS uh, company like Cospits and working with multinational procurement projects must have been a tremendous learning experience for you. Um, are you able to share one of the most challenging projects you, you took on during that time and how that shaped your approach to customer satisfaction and service? Some of those things maybe you still carry with you today? Absolutely, but I think maybe the biggest learning came to me just before I started Cospits and basically started, I went full blown on this about two years ago by now. Um, we had a we had a big national public uh, client within the PwC setup. Uh, worked for them for quite some time, and then we landed a new project. Basically, taking a look at whether or not the the category management structure and the organization behind it and the plans that they had, whether or not they made any sense or not. Um, we had all the interviews, we had all the chats, and everything they were saying was saying it's going to be great. We looked at all the reports; it all said it's going to be great. But then when we actually looked at the data and we started interviewing some of the stakeholders, so not the ones actually doing the job, they were saying pretty much exactly the opposite. Um, so we were sitting with a procurement department who either didn't want to admit it or didn't know that they were going to fail in their own planning and their own execution, and stakeholders who definitely did not believe in procurement anymore. Um, so the big thing we did was not very advanced. We just basically got them in the same room and said, guys, you're not agreeing on this. And then we just laid it out saying you had these different opinions. And within a few hours, I think they all kind of came to terms with the fact that maybe, I think maybe the stakeholders were a bit uh, too angry with procurement, but the procurement were definitely also trying to cover up maybe a bit of their own lack of execution speed. Um, and then over the next couple of weeks, we basically turned around from being a bit of a, a hide and seek game on who's doing what and what do you actually think you want to be achieving with this into real collaboration between these these different entities. And what we learned from it was that if we engage with clients in cospits or in advisory or whenever we do this, I think we need to be somewhat brutally honest with what we're actually getting from the insights we're getting from both sides of the table, but also just to get people to talk about it because often this is just communication and then there's internal politics and agendas that we as external do not need to be engaged with, but that the employees typically have to somehow adhere to, right? So we, we took a, a really crappy situation and made it really good. But honestly, we were just facilitating. They had all the skills that they had the knowledge. They were just being too over optimistic and they, they couldn't execute based on what they committed to years ago. Right? Um, so that learning and that approach being basically, you know, eye to eye level with the clients is definitely how we're running Cospits today. So whenever we have a discussion with CFOs or CPOs, we always have, you know, deep discussion about how they're running a business, what they want to get out of it, uh, why are they even talking to us? Do they even need us? We've also had calls where we had to tell them saying, guys, you don't need a tool, you need you need something else. You don't need us to go in and help you with this. It's That's not the right agenda. You just think it is, but we want to make the sale, but not now. You can call us back in a year or two when you're more ready for it. Um, and I think we just have, it helps us have much better, much more honest dialogues with our clients. Uh, it also helps us when we then do implement our project and they come back to us and say, well, okay, this stuff is really good. And this stuff, guys, is just not functioning. It doesn't work or it's too clumsy or too difficult to use, or we don't know what this blue button does in the right-hand corner, right? Um, which is something that we desperately need. So I think we need, we've definitely learned to, 
put kind of a line in how we communicate with our clients and with our users out there that is just honest and you know very personal. And I think we're trying to take that with us in our communication, both in our marketing, but also in our sales, but also definitely in our like post implementation discussion with clients. That's a, that's a huge thing for us. Thomas, thank you for sharing. And from working in procurement to now leading cost bits, your commitment to lifelong learning is just evident. Um, maybe in your opinion, what are some key lessons or skills which you've acquired along the way that have been instrumental in making cost bits a success? Yeah, I think some of the skills is maybe just because I think the, the founder team, we all like late 40s, early 50s, so we have a bit of, of years behind us by now. So maybe it's just age um, that could be part of it. But I think the key thing for us is it's probably that we learned that that we definitely work with people and not with organizations. We know the organizations are paying the bills. We know we need to work with systems to get the data to work. We need to work with users, but in the end, we're really working with people. So as long as we we keep that people to people approach, we're gonna we're gonna be okay with this because it also helps people having an honest discussion with about what works, what doesn't work, do they really want to have the tool, how's the pricing, all that stuff that you need when you're still building a building a business, right? I think that's a key thing. That's something that at least we, maybe other people can do this, but at least we were not, we didn't have that skill set um, to be honest and laid back, uh, also admitting stuff that does not work with clients if we had done this maybe 20 years ago. I think we needed a bit of a bit of seniority, a bit of age, a bit of water under the bridge for us to be able to have that approach. So I think that that definitely helps. I think we've also learned along the way that um, we get feedback from clients or we sit at our desk and we dream up this fantastic feature. But before we build anything, we really have to go out and show it. So we, we just completed a development with one of our bigger clients just before the summer holiday. We had an idea. We basically just called them up. We did a drawing, very crude, in hand. Uh, showed it to them and then they said okay let's look at this and then we had a bunch of meetings and now we have a new feature coming up right um, but that said it sounds easy but they adjusted our requirements tremendously since since we started this process so we have to listen and learn and keep on asking and then some of the feedback we get we can definitely use and some of the feedback is maybe too unique for that one client and is not applicable for other clients and then we we basically cannot build that so I think the more listening, more learning, more one-to-one -one engagement and trying to be on the same side of the table, that, that's a huge thing. And if we need something, building an organization is tricky, right? So one thing is what we do with clients. But when we started this, basically started this very slowly, a long time ago, for real, like a year and a half, two years ago, there's a lot of things we, we knew we didn't know, but there's also a lot of stuff that we had no clue about not knowing. So we just reached out. So we have a really good advisory board with a bunch of senior people and we got them to be on that board, not because we paid them, there's no shares, there's no payment for this, but just by calling them up and saying, hey, we want to build this um, and we know that you have more experience in this. Can you help us out? Can you guide us? There's a bunch of stuff that we don't know, we don't know. And then everybody honestly said yes. And we probably call somebody from the advisory board every second day, right? That's a huge help for us. So learning to ask for help, and admitting that we don't know stuff and being honest also about saying, I don't just need help on something that's very specific, but also as saying, I think I'm missing something in like my marketing, sales, tech stack, whatever it is, that's a billion pieces when you're building a new startup. 
and just putting that out openly. And then somebody will reach out and say, hey, maybe I know something about this and have that discussion. So, so I think that's, that's, that's been huge learning for us. It's very different from working corporate where either you have to say you know everything or you pretty much know who to call. As a startup, you you got no clue. This is brilliant, Thomas. And there's so many things you said there that just resonate with me um, so much because um, I, I've been an entrepreneur for most of my life as well. I'm my fourth startup now, um, about a year in with with PSL and this venture and, and finally finding some success with it. I've certainly had some failures along the way. And I think a lot of the stuff you talk about there of having the experience and the knowledge and having that that going through some of those things is is what everyone needs to go through along this journey. So I'm going to ask the question that always gives a bit of a wry smile and a bit of a laugh um, from my fellow entrepreneurs when we ask this. But as an entrepreneur yourself, setbacks and obstacles are inevitable. We know they are. Um, so can you tell us a bit more specifically about a particularly difficult moment or any any examples you faced along the way? and just how you managed to stay motivated and overcome those challenges in order to achieve your vision. Yeah, I like the fact that you say there's only one moment, maybe. It's like a moment <laughs> every day. Yeah. <laughs> no, case in point is that when I when we're looking for new staff, we have a lot of interns, a lot of people helping us out. We try to tell them what we're building and then we are reminding them that if we have a plan in the morning, the only thing we can guarantee is that you've probably done none of that in the afternoon. So I think that's, that really exemplifies how we run, you know, any startup. All we care about is, is doing execution and building as long as we go. But if we want to point to a few things, at least, that that was maybe not a surprise, but at least not a very pleasant event. We had the usual way of, you know, we definitely ran out of money last year. That was interesting. And we, we just needed one client because very early days, we didn't have a lot of cash flow needs, but we definitely had more than what I had in my bank account. So we needed to land that one client and get them to actually pay for it and get them to be happy about the product. And they just kept on stalling because as a startup, we're really fast because we're doing nothing but this, right? And we want, you know, we want to move, we want to do stuff. But because we sell B2B, we deal with organizations and they are just inherently very slow. Even in the mid-market segment, even if they're fast, they're just a lot slower than what you, know, you and I would probably want to have, right, Max? Um, so it ended up being that we basically com completely ran out of money and then called the bank and saying, it's going to be okay. We'll land something in a couple of days. And then by, you know, pure coincidence that it actually came through and it worked and now everybody is happy, right? So we'll probably do that running out of money again in two months or in a year, whatever. But at least we learned from it, right? No panic on this. We just keep on pushing for it. Um, I think, to be honest, at least there's a few people in my my you know friends and family group that says, are you sure this is a really, really smart idea because now you've done this for so long? And by the way, now you're also out of cash. How about getting a real job? And I think the easy answer to that one is that that's never going to happen because we want to build something. So so we're just going to have to make it work. So we just kept on pushing for it. I think that was a big thing. I think every entrepreneur at some point on this either come with a lot of funds or they're lucky in getting funding you know, from day one. Now, cash is just a constraint, so you're going to feel some of those pains, uh, you know, back and forth all the time, right? Um, we had a few more events. Just if you just take within the last year, um, we had basically switched a supplier for a, a key component in our stack, uh, and went from a, one setup to another setup. We knew the stack; it worked flawlessly on day one. On day two, we went completely offline, 
And and we discovered this because, of course, we sit and test and monitor the system. We discovered that in the morning, call them up and they say, no, that can't be because we think you're online. And then we had a bit of a discussion about that one because we had no access. It was during the weekend, so it, it didn't matter for our, our users at all. But but that experience of sitting on, you know, basically on a Friday and saying, oh, it's going to be great. And then Saturday morning, it, you know, email pings in saying we have no access to our system. That definitely killed my weekend. Let's just put it that way. We opened running again on Monday, but we had a bit of a bit of a stressful weekend, to be honest, because we had no idea and we had no control because this was something definitely on the supplier side. So one of the lessons learned from that one is that if we have critical infrastructure, which this turned out to be, which we didn't expect it to be, we'll build it ourselves. We're in houses, so now we've completely moved it in house, of course. So hopefully, if it happens again, at least it's our fault and we can fix it. Um, what else do we have? I think, yeah, we did, we had a bit of change of staff, of course, as it goes. Um, and at some point, that was in May this year, um, our CTO, who was, was really good, actually said that he wanted to do something else, which is completely fair. He, he put in a lot of efforts, really good guy. Um, but when you suddenly stand there without a CTO, you're like, okay, how the hell am I going to build a tech startup if my CTO quits? And then I did the same thing, just reach out for help. I basically you know, emailed and called some of my friends, hey, I have this guy is leaving, he's really good, I need somebody else, I need somebody now. And by the way, we're still not really cash flow positive on this. And then within like two weeks, it turns out that a good friend of mine I worked with for the last 28 years, he had time, he had interest in this one, and he jumped in to help write. Uh, but we had a couple of weeks where we were definitely sort of pressed for luck on that one because I can't code a single line. I can work with the clients, no procurement, but coding, definitely not what I do. So I needed help on that one. Thank you for sharing, Thomas. And let's go to our final question. Making positive impact on the world is just a remarkable goal. How do you envision cost bits and your work contributing to a more positive and impactful future? Um, and and especially in in the broader context of society, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more. Absolutely, definitely. Um, so I think working within procurement, we have a tendency of saying that all we do is cost. And I think we also have to be honest, saying that we actually get paid to manage cost. Either we reduce the cost, which is what everybody thinks we're doing. We're also doing other stuff, guys, but you no, know, reducing cost typically is the key KPI for uh, for any procurement department, right? We also do, you know, get access to goods and services, you're in growth pattern, but cost typically is like the key driver. Get more out of the money you want to spend. Not saying you don't want to spend it, but just be more efficient about your cost. Make sure you focus on compliance, et cetera. Um, when, when you look at all the global surveys, cost is always number one as a priority. Cost reduction is top priority for everybody across the board. Uh, the only segment, which is a bit interesting, that doesn't typically doesn't have cost reduction as, a, as the first priority, is the public sector because they have different compliance rules. Paying taxes, out which they also had cost reduction, right? But that's a different discussion. Um, so... I think just focusing on costs is interesting. It's a must-do, but it doesn't really help save the planet. Um, I'm a father of two small girls, so I have a keen interest in making sure that they have a planet to live on that's not covered in plastic and all residues um, in you know, 20, 30 years when I'm not here, when they're actually grown up and they have their own kids. Um, so so we are very much focused on how do we, how do we put in more of a sustainability approach into what is inherently spend analytics, you know, benchmarking tool for us. And what we've done is saying, okay, so we need to give people a choice. 
Um, so if you sit in procurement, operational purchasing in any organization, you typically buy out of key requirements and then cost. But because we have so much data from the market, so much data on the individual SKU level, and now also EU and the US are working on, on uh, reporting um, requirements for like scope one, two, and three emissions plus the rest of the agenda, we actually have enough data to make sure that you can you can pick and choose your services based on your requirements, of course, because that's where you buy it, and costs. But we're also working hard with a couple of clients and saying, how do we also add a sustainability approach to it? So when you make a choice, you can choose not just what to pay for it, but also your, your footprint on the planet going forward. Um, and the reason for having that one is, is very personal because we all we all have families basically in this company, right? So we want to be sure there's something left when we actually leave this planet. Um, but we also think that we can, I think it's very light that we can actually push the needle. I think if we just focus on sustainability reporting, there's a whole bunch of companies doing like carbon reporting, which is fair, that's a legal requirement, but it doesn't change anything. It's too late in the process. I mean, you've already bought and consumed the service of the product. So we want to get involved much, much earlier. We want to be sure that when you make that choice on what to buy and what to use and what quantities and where you buy it from, that you can choose between, you know, the cost picture, your requirements, but definitely also what is your, your what is your footprint? What is your ESG footprint on this? It's going to be a never-ending journey. We start what we can get based on CO2 data. That's very publicly available. Anybody can get that if they have enough data mining in the back. And then over time, we'll expand it. And then hopefully that would get people to make better choices because, they're also reporting on it, and most organizations, if they have the choice, we want to have pick a greener choice if it still pays the bills and if the cost is still okay. So that's that's really the long-term goal for us. And then suddenly we can really actually change something in the long run. Wonderful. Thomas, thanks so much for sharing everything. And just to um uh, on some of those things you said that uh, really resonate again with with I'm sure with both of us and um yeah, it, uh, coming from a procurement background myself, I know uh, and agree with you that I think procurement has a real part to play in sustainability and focusing on those supplier choices and how that uh, end user procurement choices is empowered and how those uh, purchase orders are, orders are raised um, with a, uh, a good visibility on who is being bought from and how that uh, company is is on its sustainable journey and how that affects the whole supply chain i think is absolutely massive so completely agree with you that's a great um, a great way to make a, a positive contribution to to you know, the whole the whole global um uh, climate change and everything else uh, through the work you're doing so really inspiring stuff to hear um charlotte uh, have you got anything else you wanted to ask thomas or add um at the end well, Thomas, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing all your incredible insights and, and experience in your entrepreneurial journey. I think that's definitely an inspiration for all of our listeners and to our listeners. Thank you for joining in once again to this episode. And every entrepreneurial journey is, is unique. So stay inspired and I look forward to having you back next time. Absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this enlightening episode of the Global Business Insights Podcast. Stay tuned for more inspiring stories and valuable insights that will continue to guide and uplift you on your journey.